0: You're listening to The Hungry Soul with Rachel Foy, covering all topics from spirituality, mindset work, beliefs, relationships, food, body image, business, money, self-expression, and more. Helping you become a soul-fed woman. gorgeous and welcome to episode 51 here at The Hungry Soul with myself Rachel. So before we introduce today's lovely lovely guest onto the show and it's somebody who's already been on the show before, a little sneaky peek, I just wanted to have a very 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 short conversation about something that has really kind of fueled my fire and my passion to talk to even more women and it's to do with dieting and why it's a feminist issue. So a little while ago I I came across a quote by Naomi Wolf and it just resonated so much like on such a deep level with the beliefs that I have. And in the beauty myth, she writes, a culture fixated on female thinness is not an obsession about female beauty, but an obsession about female obedience. Dieting is the most potent political sedative in women's history. A quietly mad population is a tractable one. Now, For many of us women, we have been on so many diets throughout our life. And actually today's guest on the show, when I interviewed her a little while ago, I think it was last year, we actually spoke about dieting and emotional eating. Um, So that's something that I know that, that so many of us do resonate with. And unfortunately, it has become this part of accepted behavior. And it's not even just accepted, it's like we have gotten to that place now where we almost we almost admire it. You know, it's like our society's got this preoccupation with perfecting the female body that not only is it accepted, but it's also admired, you know, and there's conversations of like, oh, did you lose weight? I wish I had your willpower. And these carefully curated feeds on Instagram, where we see women that are like working their butts off in the gym and the hashtag is like, what's your excuse? And, you know, this, this obsession it really kind of made me fully appreciate how much it oppresses women because it undermines their worth as anything more than a physical object and not just that but it's a physical object which which should look a certain way so dieting really is this this kind of this belief system this energy whereby it convinces women that they are inadequate and that they are not enough and they must try harder which effectively silences them from speaking up and becoming change makers within society because it takes their power away. You know, dieting and weight loss efforts, it imprisons women. Dieting is violence towards the female form because dieting really encourages women to take up less space in the world and to be smaller. And that might be something that you've never thought about in that sense before, because I know that I hadn't and It's only been in the last few years that I've really appreciated that when I was a diet junkie, that actually I was buying into this system as well. You know, I was buying into the the belief that I was supposed to take up less space and I was supposed to be smaller. And actually it was a very oppressive behavior. So if that's something that you resonate with, I just want to very quickly direct you somewhere that I know is going to really help with this. If you are in that cycle of, binging and overeating and then feeling guilty and then you feel like you need to diet and then the whole cycle starts over again and you are actually partaking in this this diet culture particularly if you are somebody who's got small children you know whether you've got daughters or nieces or you know, maybe daughters of friends of yours, the biggest gift that you can give them is for you to start healing your relationship with food and your body. So I wanna direct you to the Food Freedom Masterclass. It's over at foodfreedommasterclass.com. Um, This is one of my flagship programs, um, which takes you from being an emotional eater, diet junkie, food obsessive, to somebody who has her freedom with food. And it's not just about the food, it's actually freedom with you. It's feeling confident in your body, it's actually owning who you are, and it's not having that desire to take up less space in the world, it's the opposite. No, it's about you stepping into your truth, shining your light, and actually being completely unapologetic for who you are. So that's the food masterclasscom Go and have a little nosy. If it resonates with you, then I would be absolutely honored to take you through this, this journey with me, okay? Right then. So let's move on to today's guest. I almost want to kind of have a bit of a drum roll moment because I want to introduce you now to a really lovely lady and actually a very good friend of mine. This is Andrea Owen. Now, Andrea is somebody who has been on the show before probably a good year or so. And we spoke particularly about food at the time, but today we're talking about something else. And if you are an ambitious, high-achieving woman who maybe right now is struggling with perfectionism and control and isolation, then we had the most fantastic conversation about certain habits that can actually hold us back from our happiness. So Andrea is an author, she's a mentor, she is a certified life coach, and she takes said women through a journey as well, um, allowing them to choose courage and confidence instead. So she's the author of two books. The first one is called 52 Ways to Live a Kick-Ass Life. And her second book has just been released and this is what we, we had a conversation about. The second book, love the title, it's called How to Stop Feeling Like Shit 14 Habits That Are Holding You Back from Happiness. So I invited Andrew on the show. I saw that she was doing some kind of promotion work around her book, and I just resonated with the title of it straight away. And I thought, oh my gosh, we need to talk about this. So we spoke about some of these habits. Um, Andrea shared some of her experiences about these habits for herself as did I and she explained to us why she had the desire to write this book um, and also what kind of things we can start doing now if we feel that things like perfectionism and control are actually holding us back from feeling and being happy in our lives and in our bodies. So without further ado here is the delightful Andrea Owen. Right then everyone so we've got the gorgeous Andrea Owen with us today. Good afternoon, Good morning. Right. Good morning for me. Yes. <laughs> good afternoon for you. Yes. How are you doing today? I'm great. I'm
1: excited. You're my very first um, interview, so I'm always a little bit more bright-eyed and bushy-tailed in the morning, so I'm excited for this conversation.
0: <laughs> oh, that's good. that's good to know. I've just had an extra large coffee, so I'm good to go as well. <laughs> okay. Oh, good. We're ready. <laughs> We're ready. So, um, well, Andrew's actually already been on my show quite a while ago. I think it was about a year ago. Wow, we had a great conversation around some bits and pieces. But mm-hmm. today, um, I invited Andrew on the show because she's got a new book out, which I'm so excited about other women reading. So there she is, How <laughs> to Stop Feeling Like Shit. So it dances across the screen. Um, so I'm just going to get stuck in actually with the question of why did you write this book? Like, what was your reason and your catalyst and your trigger to put all this wisdom and knowledge into a book? Well, I love that question and I think sometimes it can be really boring
1: when it gets asked of an author, but <laughs> it does have a story behind it. I I wrote my first book in 2012 and after I wrote that for anyone who's done a big creative project, they can probably relate. I was wrung out to dry. I was I, I said I'm never writing another book again. I, I gave all of my wisdom and knowledge in that first book and then as they say that books like we don't find books that books find us and so i just sort of surrendered to it but what ended up happening is in 2014 i went to san antonio texas to get certified in the work of dr Brené brown for those people that don't know who she is she's a researcher uh, and author who extensively studies uh, courage and shame and authenticity and connection and topics big topics like those and it changed my life professionally and personally and part of part of how it changed my life is i really started paying attention to some of the behaviors that i had chronically engaged in in my life for me personally the, they were overachieving perfectionism control and um the identity of being strong were, were probably my my biggest ones and so then i started paying attention to my clients and the women in my my groups and I noticed we, we would work on those and talk about those a lot. And when I would talk about it, I would say, these are the things that we do because they work well for us for a while. I'm not going to say yeah. that they don't. And we think that they are protecting us from criticism and failure and shame and all these things that we don't want. But after a while, we get to a certain point where they end up making us feel like shit and hence the title of the book. I love the
0: book. The book title is amazing. I, was I'm like, yeah, I don't actually. know what else to call it. No, exactly. Says <laughs> so what it does.
1: <laughs> yeah. So then I just sat down and, and there were about 14 of them that I saw chronically across the board with my people. And then I wrote the
0: book. And there you go. And then here it is, and it's, I know, all I it's make glory. it so easy. I know. <laughs> I just sat down and I put it all under paper, and there you go, Book writ. <laughs> it. so i I do want to ask you, because I know last time you and I spoke, it was around um it was we were talking about food and like emotional eating, because I know that's something that you've also kind of dealt with and you mm-hmm. still probably help women with as well. But I have a feeling that this book that you've now written, obviously it's kind of aimed at women. Mm -hmm, And I'm intrigued as to why you think this book is so important for us women to kind of get our hands on and to actually know more about
1: well, I mean, let's not ignore the big giant elephant in the room. Right now, as we're recording this, uh, you know, the Golden Globes just happened, the Me Too movement has just happened. We are in a time where women are paying attention Absolutely. and yeah. uh, whether they are just now starting to speak out and if they aren't, they're paying attention and they're probably feeling restless and mm-hmm. and and looking at how they can tell their own truth and make a difference in the world um and just have these these bigger conversations to make change in the world. So this book is related to that because we grew up in a culture or we, you know still are in a culture where we don't so many things. Like where do I even begin? <laughs> um we don't really know how to cope with things. You know, we um we lean on things like people pleasing and perfectionism and uh, overachieving in order to create an identity for ourselves, in order to validate ourselves, in order to esteem ourselves, because we don't know any other way. And I I just want to say for the record, this book is not, hey, Rachel, here's the 14 things you're doing wrong. You need to change them in order to be happier and, and be one of us. It's not that at all. What I want the win to be for people is, these are the 14 things that we're all doing that we've learned how to do, and they're not in alignment with who you are, I can promise you that. They do end up making you feel badly, and let's be aware of them when we're in it so that we can get out in front of it more quickly and choose behaviors that are more in alignment with the woman that we wanna be.
0: Yeah, and I suppose it's also about giving everybody that permission to, to be aware of that collectiveness, that we all tend to do these things, yeah. that it's not defaultly wrong, that it doesn't mean that someone is better than someone else if they don't, or vice versa. But I know that the 14 Habits, when I went through the book, I was like, oh my God, at some point, I have literally had these habits, and some of them, I still have them.
1: Yeah, and just having works. that,
0: knowing that I'm not on my own with this, like this is something that we all are challenged by.
1: Yeah, and I'm sure you have this say similar mission in your work too, Rachel, where it's like you want people to feel less alone, right? Like that's why you do the work you do and you talk about your own stuff. Is you you that was my that's I I'm I'm coming up on my 10 year anniversary of blogging, and that's really what I set out to do is like I wanted Mm -hmm. I wanted to know I wasn't the only one. And then I also wanted to other people to feel like they weren't alone too. And yeah, and I talk about that in the book. Like I still do some of these behaviors. You know, I talk about the ones I still struggle with the most and and again, it's just about being aware of when you're doing it, not so you can beat yourself up, but so you can have some self-compassion
0: and learn other ways of coping. Absolutely. I think two of the, um, probably people listening or watching right now that won't yet have read the book will be thinking, what are these habits that she's talking about? So <laughs> the four- leaving us in suspense. <laughs> <laughs> of the 14 that you put in the book though, Andrew, the two actually that jumped out for me and I want to actually share this was compare and despair. And yep. you entitled that the never ending mind fuck, which I was like, mm-hmm. oh my God, she's nailed it. That's exactly <laughs> what it is. Um, And also that perfectionism, the perfectionism prison, self-destruction at its finest. They are the two for me that they're still, they do come up in waves and sometimes I don't notice them mm-hmm. until I've, you know, I'm actually in it. And then I realize, oh, hang on, I need to kind of take stock with this. So I'm intrigued for you. Like you said that you still have some of these behaviors, which ones do you tend to? Slide in. Into- Mine hands down is control. I think I titled that one just let me do it. Yes.
1: <laughs> Letting go of control. <laughs> yeah. And 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 for me, control is with everyday like logistics things as well as emotional control. Cause I think that you know they're, they're two different but indirectly related things. Mm-hmm that's probably my biggest struggle. Um, perfectionism. I've really, being the mother of two small children and running a business, I think has sort of forced me to, you know, I've, I've just had to learn how to let go of things out of sheer survival, um, and things not being perfect, but probably, um, let me, let me flip through. Oh, what's come up recently for me is the imposter complex,
0: oh, Okay, which is
1: one, when I wrote the book, I felt like I didn't, that I'm, out of all of the 14 habits, I thought to myself, this is probably the one I struggle with the least. And mm-hmm. then when I started, uh, when I got the book deal, I thought to myself, okay, well, now I'm a bona fide author because the first book could have been a fluke. They probably just liked my brand. Like I literally thought this, like they probably just liked my brand (laughs) and like, oh, we'll take a chance on this author, you know, and whatever. But now that it's the second time, you know, like it's thoughts like that, that's imposter complex. Like,
0: oh, it was just luck the first time. Absolutely. Again, I can relate to that in some way, shape or form. Um, So, Kind of going through the book, you mentioned about Brené Brown, which I'm sure so many listeners are familiar with the work. And if you aren't, you need to go and check her out because she's amazing at what she does, go now. But Brené Brown does talk a lot about shame, um, Mm -hmm. kind of the connection of shame, as you mentioned. So what does shame have to do with the 14 habits that you've put in your book? Because there is- I love that question. Okay, so what
1: I started to hear from a lot of, of my clients who were familiar with Brené's work, and they would say things like, I, I get like, I understand the vulnerability thing and I'm really interested in trying to cultivate more courage in my life, but I don't walk around feeling ashamed. Mm-hmm. You know, am I not you know a person for this work or I'm not really sure what Renee is talking about? And I don't either. You know, I don't walk around like it's not like my baseline. And what it is is that that's why these that's where these fourteen habits come in. So if anytime you're engaging in people pleasing or self-sabotage or perfectionism, you are trying you're doing those things to try to avoid shame. Mm. So you know, Brene says, like whether you know it or not, your triggers are running your life. Mm. And I, that's why I think it's so important to know. How you want to be perceived by other people. Because when you're engaging in, like, let's just take perfectionism and people pleasing, you're trying to engineer your life so that you're perceived a certain way by other people in order to try to avoid (laughs) failure, criticism, judgment, because those things are what
0: bring, have the risk of bringing us shame. So that's, does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah. So actually that the, the shame connection is not that you might consciously be aware of feeling shameful. It's more of like the, the ultimate thing that we're actually protecting ourselves from without really knowing that we're doing it. It's controlling our life. If
1: you are trying and usually unconsciously, if you are trying to engineer your life in order to avoid it, you know, by doing those behaviors, then you are allowing shame to control your
0: life there's that control word again we're trying to control everything to do with who we are etc no uncertainty no exactly so obviously with your experience of having done what you've done for like you said about a decade decade. you've Mm -hmm. worked with Brené Brown you've gotten the books etc of those 14 habits I'm assuming that a few of them are more common than some Mm -hmm. of the others so which ones do you tend to see kind of appear for, for more people in terms of like your clients and the women that you've spoken to?
1: It really depends on whose audience I'm talking to. And it's interesting, you know, after I went and did my training, I came home and was thinking about just a handful of these behaviors. I didn't have the list of 14 yet, and I sent out a survey to my community and I I gave them five options. It was perfectionism, control, people-pleasing, isolating and hiding out and numbing out. Mm-hmm. And I said of those five, which one, you know, pick the one that you struggle with the most. And I think I did allow people to pick more than one. And there was no real winner. Mm-hmm. Like, they were pretty much, and a lot of people said, I struggle with all of those equally. So I, I think, you know, if I, if I really had to answer the question for your audience, I would probably say numbing out. Totally, um, yep. Definitely. And and I put the two chapters right next to each other for a reason and isolating and hiding out. Mm-hmm. So the difference between those two is isolating and hiding out is when things are going rough in your life, when you're in struggle, something's happened, you hesitate to reach out to someone who cares about you or you don't do it at all. Yeah. Or you maybe only tell them half the story. So yeah. that's, or you procrastinate and you say something like, I'll talk to her next week about it. Rachel's so busy. I don't I don't want to bother her or you're, or you're consciously just embarrassed or ashamed of what has happened and you don't want to tell another human being. We need connection. We cannot go through this life alone. And uh, and then the numbing is pretty self-explanatory, I'm sure. Your people know what that looks like what that means.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I'm and I'm assuming as well that a lot of these kind of behaviors and let's call them habits because a lot of them can become quite habitual can't they like Mm -hmm. we don't even know we're doing it sometimes right that there's such a an overlap and and i kind of when i looked at the book and i was reading it i kind of i had this awareness that i can see and appreciate how it's almost like a domino effect yeah you kind of do one and then it leads on to the other and then you're doing another one because you're trying to cover up this one and and it just ends up becoming this whole fourteen <laughs> habits, like your- a to-do list for your day.
1: Yeah, exactly. yeah <laughs> wake up in the morning, you know, do a little numbing out, go to work, people please, perfectionism, go home, isolate, and hide out. Yeah, it just it becomes what we know. And again, I, I want to kind of underscore this. I just briefly mentioned it earlier. These behaviors work for us for a while. Like I, I, I say very candidly that. Perfectionism and overachieving got me to graduate from on with honors from college yeah. um control allowed me to do my job very well, you know this one and when I was in a in a corporate setting and it it just they they do work. I'm not going to say they're all bad, but we cross the line, mm-hmm. and then also the way I describe it is the women that come to me are. Typically, like when they're ready, especially to do private work with me, they've tied a knot at the end of their rope. They are hanging on, and their palms are starting to sweat. They are at that place where they're not; these these behaviors aren't working for them anymore, and they don't know why.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I suppose there's extremes, aren't there? You know, sometimes we can do something, like you said, that kind of serves us. But if we keep going and we push it a little bit more or a little bit harder, it ends up becoming very detrimental, um, yes. and it doesn't serve us anymore.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm rough place to be
0: yeah no definitely so i I know i know so many people can relate to this as you're talking i'm nodding going yeah that was me yeah i did that (laughs) that was my check my checklist of how i lived my life (laughs) um so i believe that you had a bit of a We call it a crisis in the middle of writing this book. That thing did have a crisis, kind of. had a crisis. So what? What kind of? What? Yeah. What happened? How did it change
1: things? It was sort of ironic in its own in its own way. So I wrote the entire book in the year of twenty sixteen, and I was about three quarters of the way through the manuscript, and it was it was due to my publisher on December thirty first, twenty sixteen. So, my family and I had gone on a vacation and we got home, and I knew that my dad wasn't well, um, but I had just seen him in June and he was fine. We're on different coasts now. I grew up in in San Diego, California, where he still was, and I'm in North Carolina, opposite side of the country. And we got back from that vacation in late September, found out he had a rare form of leukemia Hmm. and that he did not have much longer. And I went, I flew home to see him, and he was terrible, he was uh, unrecognizable.
0: Mm -hmm. And
1: he died on October 16th. So it was very fast. I was with him when he died. It was just me. Um, uh, My siblings chose not to be there. And my stepmother had just left 30 minutes prior to go home and get some rest. And I had never lost anyone before that. I had never, I mean, I lost, my cat died when I was in high school. And that was pretty much as devastating a death as I had gotten for me. So that's my dad, and um, I had to go home and finish my book. (laughs) (laughs) I on the plane ride home, I thought to myself, "Well, this is ironic. Here I am writing a book on the behaviors that we do. Many of the behaviors when life gets really hard for us. Am I going? And I'm so hyper aware of it because I'm writing the book. Am I going to fall back on some of these behaviors? And sure as shit, I did. And I was okay with that. You know, I went through, there was three days where I isolated and hid out and didn't want to talk to anybody. There was one point where it, when I first got word that he was terminal, I immediately like canceled all my plans for the afternoon, drove to the mall and went shopping to buy the perfect dress and shoes for his service because I couldn't imagine not, he was numbing out. I was like, I can't deal yep. with this. Yep. I need to go shopping. And yep. I did. And I felt better for about 10 minutes and knew what was going on and I was like okay this is okay I just it's one one day at a time was too hard for me at that point it was just like one hour at a time just like let me get through these hours and I I really just took care of myself and was compassionate and then also I creatively I was compassionate too and I I went home and and, and was confident I could finish the manuscript on time, but I, I took a month and just wrote dark, sad poetry about what I was going through. And that's how I pro- processed my emotions. So I was actually feeling my feelings where if it was six, seven years ago, I would have drank the whole way through. And, um, and I didn't, and I made it out. And grief yeah. is still, I wrote about it in the book. It's still one of the Biggest lessons of surrender. I got the word surrender tattooed on the inside of my arm after he died because it was a reminder that to trust myself and trust the universe that
0: I will be okay. Absolutely. I mean, obviously, really, obviously very, very sad to hear about your dad. Thank you. Like you said there with the book, and I think you just highlighted that so beautifully when you said that sometimes these behaviors and these habits they do serve us like it's about coping, isn't it? It's about Mm. not knowing what else to do in the moment apart from to eat or apart from to shop or apart from to just lock the door and just pretend that the outside world doesn't exist. And that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes that is actually the best form of what we need. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I have a client right now who, who
1: just got some hard news and, and she was messaging me and she said, I spent four hours on the couch watching Netflix and I said, good you know, like just, it was just the four hours, you know, she got out of it. And sometimes we need to do that. Sometimes life can feel unbearable. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that it's all platitudes and uh, rainbows and, and like, oh, just think positive thoughts. And no, life is hard sometimes. It's it's okay. Just have some
0: self-compassion and kindness. Absolutely. So talking about self-compassion, is that one of your supposed solutions that you give the readers in the book? Like how do we, how do we deal with these? Let's say that we've recognized some, what do we do about it?
1: Yeah. And that's, um, you know, the the reckoning sometimes, like when we turn the lights on in a messy room and we realize like what we're looking at, (laughs) I call that like the ultimate ass kicker, you know, like when we, when we realize how deep we're in and the work that we have to do in the uphill battle, what I see is a lot of people start to beat themselves up for that, you know, and, oh, I have so many issues and I'm never going to get better. And Rachel and Andrea have it all figured out and I don't, that type of conversation. (laughs) I know, right? No, we don't. But I I just want to say that because that's really common and watch out if you hear your inner critic saying that. And also just, you know, self-compassion is kind of a, a buzz term these days. And I feel like sometimes that is like going from A to Z. If you have been spending decades beating yourself up and being hard on yourself, don't expect to be able to speak the language of self-compassion fluently in a hot second. What I like to teach people to do and what has worked really well for me is just acknowledgement and neutrality. So what that looks like is um, if I hear my inner critic chiming up, then I will, I tell myself I have mantras and one of them is, well, that just happened. Or that's interesting information. You know, I'm not, it's not a negative mantra. It's not a positive mantra. It's just acknowledgement. Like, you know, thank you for your opinion. (laughs) And then just, you know, and then, and then re, you know, course correct. And what I also hear from people is like, well, then what if my inner critic just starts chattering all over again? I'm like, well, then you, you know, this isn't like, boom, magic you are learning to speak a new language you are going to have to keep practicing it over and over and over again you have two choices you can either practice this
0: or you can keep going the way that you've been going yeah and and i think sometimes talking about the inner critic very quickly we have actually been practicing that for such a long time like without us knowing that we've been doing it so I'm so glad that you mentioned that point there about we can't often go from A to Z in an instant because there's these steps in the in the in the process and it takes yeah. time and sometimes that is actually part of self-compassion it's giving ourselves the time and the space that we need
1: well yeah it's 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 basic science too it's neural pathways you know we know from brain science that our that our brains are you know have the plasticity and we create new neural pathways it's the same with learning a new language i don't know the science behind this this is strictly my own theory but in my personally i've taken between high school and college i've taken a combination of about 6 years of spanish and when i and i even grew up hearing it it's my mom's first language she speaks it to all of her sisters i i grew up hearing it I do not speak Spanish (laughs) or I can say like minimal sentences, like me gusta los toca discos, which is, I like record players, which doesn't help at all. (laughs) And (laughs) I say that because like it's the same with self-compassion and learning to speak kindly to yourself. If you don't practice it, you're not going to know how to do it. It's the same thing. So you have to be as consistent as possible and, and strengthen that muscle
0: yeah absolutely and actually that um i want to say the word commitment but not in a restrictive kind of um yeah sort of strangling way but actually having that commitment of of sort of showing up for yourself and recognizing the inner demons when they don't serve you and then trying to do something about it amen yes absolutely no kind of committed to it um okay so of the, the 14 um, you've, you've already kind of said like a few of you, a few of them sorry, you still are aware of, et cetera. I wanna ask you a question which I would like to have an honest answer from. Do you yes. think, <laughs> do you think it's realistic for anybody to get to a place at some point in their life when all of these habits in the book are very, very rarely there anymore? Like, do you think that? Good question. Yeah, do you think it's possible?
1: Looking at the list. Um, very, very rarely, I don't think so. I think that it's I think it's sort of this um, I'm trying to think of a game that's a good example. It, 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 I think it's sort of like a tug of war, if you will. So mm. you know we might we might be really well practiced in one of them, like let's say like compare and despair. Um, I talk about in the chapter that I'm I'm never, ever going to tell you to stop comparing. I honestly feel like it's something that we just do as humans. Like it's some kind of survival mechanism. It's just really gotten out of hand with social media, et cetera. But I think that what is possible is for you to recognize so very quickly that you are in it. Mm. I want the win to be for people that they recognize within minutes that their inner critic is chattering about the fact that their genes are a little bit tighter, Uh, Instead of letting it take them through the whole day. And the problem, when it becomes a big problem is not just that it feels terrible, but that it ends up dictating your choices and behaviors. Um, I mean, I'm sure for a lot of your people, it's like, oh, my jeans are tight. I call it like you get a case of the fuckets where (laughs) you just like throw in the towel and then end up eating things that don't make you feel good for the rest of the day or the rest of the week. Yeah. I want the win to be that you notice when you're comparing yourself to to someone else. I want the win to be, you notice when you are saying yes to your neighbor over and over again, when she wants you to watch her kids, when it's really inconvenient for you so that you can choose different behaviors and all of those things within, hopefully within the half hour. I mean, that's mm. a huge win
0: instead of letting it just totally take over your life. Yeah. And I I think some of these habits, well, for me personally, because I can relate to so many of them kind of from my past, um, it's actually having that awareness as well. Because I know that like, we're talking about this as in, oh, people can do this. And sometimes we people please, and sometimes we numb out. But it's quite shocking how many people actually don't even realize that that's what they're doing. Like you said, when you're in it, you sometimes don't even know you're in it. So having so that awareness. Upset. Yeah, exactly. You're so used to it. So self-awareness must also come into this conversation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's what my editor read the manuscript and she goes, this is a book of massive self-awareness. And I said, yes, you just described it really well. Awesome. And and that's, I mean, how that's the beginning of change. I mean, that's the basics. That's, yeah. that's personal development 101. You can't change what you can't see, what, what you're unconscious of. And that's what that's why I wanted to write this book because it's like, these are, you guys, these are the basics. Like this is like how we're acting in life. And I mean, I go over everything from a step-by-step process to boundaries, to finding out what your values are. So you have some kind of map in North Star. To me, these are like the basics. It took me 10 years to learn it. It will
0: only <laughs> take you uh, 200 pages to read. <laughs> there you go. That's, that's the selling point straight away. It's like condense 10 years worth of experience and just read it in 200 pages. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um one final question before i ask a final question okay um i'm curious about acceptance because this isn't something that we've touched on but i know from a lot of the work that i do and from from what you do as well sometimes self-acceptance is also really powerful and it's different from self-compassion isn't it but it's actually Mm -hmm. it's actually being able to get to that place i'm going to use me as an example so that perfectionism I have accepted that there will always be a part of me that has this perfectionist tendency that's just who I am and rather than fight it and change it and heal it and trying to not do that anymore I've kind of just accepted that that's kind of who I am and I'm okay with that do you think acceptance is also part of these these habits as well in terms of how we can move through them quicker
1: A thousand percent. I think that it also helps to really know your personality. I think there are some people who are more naturally nurturing caregivers Mm. and where it crosses the line is they turn into people pleasers and they have issues with boundaries and it starts to negatively affect their life. If you are a people pleaser, I'm not asking you to say no to every single person and shut everybody out. You know, I, I also tend to get a lot of dichotomous thinkers, you know, it's black or white. It's either one extreme or the other, but absolutely. I think acceptance is huge in this work and just accepting You know, I know a lot of people listening probably, and you, Rachel, like you have a value around excellence. If you're going to do something, do it well. I mean, I can look behind you at your beautiful office. (laughs) All the spacing is perfect between your pictures. Like you have a value around excellence. Like I love that. That's probably gotten you to where you are right now. And I, what, I, what I would be, as a facilitator, what I would be curious of is like, where is this negatively affecting your life? And that's what I wrote about in the book. I don't anyone want to, I don't want anyone to change their personality. Absolutely not. I just want to know where is it out of alignment with your values? And again, that's the last chapter of the book, because I don't think that most people know actually what's important about the way they live their life, yeah. what's important to them. Um, they've gotten so wrapped up in the identity of all of these habits, they've either lost touch or never had touch with what is actually important to them. And that personally, I think for a woman especially is revolutionary to know that and live it. And um,
0: I kind of went off on a tangent there, but to answer your question, the short answer is yes, acceptance no, for that's the too- win. <laughs> absolutely and I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that though then about the it's more about it's not changing our personality it's just it's having that realization of when these things no longer serve us so for me with my perfectionism it's not a problem until it gets to a certain point right. and then it does end up becoming too yeah too too it just doesn't help me but i recognize that and i know what to do about it now so yeah i think that's yeah an important point to mention yes like where just one more thing on perfectionism
1: like um, kind of a, a litmus test would be when you are s- not putting your creative project out into the world or a, a firm, for you it might be like a program or a coaching package because you're worried it's not perfect or even a blog post I know some people that agonize over blog posts for days and days and days uh, or if you are not um or you're not going to the gym because you feel like you need to lose 10 pounds and look a certain way in your Lululemon pants before you go, or you're not asking that person out because you're, you know, you're worried cause you haven't gotten your roots down or that's a terrible example, but you know what I mean? Like where it's <laughs> yeah. creating a small life for you, yeah.
0: that is where it has crossed the line and is negatively affecting you. Absolutely. Swear. So for me, that would wear that would be when I'm no longer feeling like the the essence of the soul-fed woman of kind of, you know, embodying the truth and the authentic me. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, awesome. Okay, so we're coming towards the end of the interview because I'm conscious of keeping you too long, although I could quite happily keep you here for much longer, (laughs) Um, based on this conversation so far, if someone's listening or watching right now and they've already kind of identified with some of these habits, some of these behaviors, they're gonna go buy your book, have you got kind of one piece of advice for somebody as to where can they start today? Like what would be the first thing that somebody can do like now?
1: Mm -hmm. I would definitely, and that's why I started the book with it, is chapter one is, is take inventory of how you speak to yourself. And sometimes that can feel like such a monstrous task for people. So I ask them to break it down to parts of your life. So it might be, you know, career is one area, intimate relationships is another area, friendships, um, your past, your future goals, and for women especially, our body and appearance can tend to be our number one shame trigger. Absolutely. So maybe you start with that. You know, how do you speak to yourself when you step out of the shower and see your naked reflection in the mirror in not so great lighting? Um, what do you tell yourself when you've made a mistake at work and it was an honest mistake? Uh, could happen to anybody, and your boss mentions it. Mm-hmm. those types of things. And, you know, I'm not saying, again, I'm going to repeat myself, but this isn't about getting to a place of never speaking poorly to yourself. I, I honestly think, you know, Oprah still does it. I know Brene Brown still does it. <laughs> you know, these experts that we tend to put up on pedestals still do it, but the win for you, I want to be that you recognize it very quickly. Yes. And um, just, you know, one tool, and I mentioned it before, is to just have a mantra, and it's about, it's pattern interruption is what it is, and that's, that's what I do, and it's, okay, that just happened, or, you know, like, well, that's interesting information, and I did that when I was at the pediatrician's office with my, with my kids, and we had to wait a long time in the office, and I don't weigh myself anymore. I just, I've struggled with an eating disorder, and it's just not necessary. Um, I'm mm-hmm. not an Olympic weightlifter. I don't need to weigh myself, yeah. Yeah. And, the, and I actually refuse at the doctor's office unless they're giving me medication or anesthesia. I just don't. I mean, I'm not a medical professional, but they've never argued with me. There's just no reason for them to weigh me. So we're waiting in this office and there was a digital scale in there and I just was bored and they were weighing themselves and I, I'm like, oh, I'm curious, you know, how much I weigh. And before I even got on the scale, I told myself, this is going to just be information. And I got on and it was more than I expected. And and I, I knew that I had gained some weight and I, I, I said it out loud and I'm like, oh, that's interesting information. Yes. <laughs> that was it. Yeah. And it didn't dictate how I felt about myself. It just was a number that to me is a miracle for someone who obsessed for years on calories in calories out and this number on the scale and weighed myself multiple times a day and had goals of pant sizes and things like that that is a miracle absolutely it came came with doing the work
0: yeah and approaching things with curiosity isn't it it's like take away the judgment take away the attachment take away the stories the criticism it's just that's interesting isn't that interesting that's one of my mantras actually Oh, oh, I love interesting. it. Interesting, yeah.
1: <laughs> Curiosity, I yeah, it's one of my favorite tools.
0: Curiosity, awesome. Listen, we'll come to the end. So thank you so much for chatting with us today at the Hungry Soul. Um, for anybody who does want to get your book, um, I am going to be posting the links below this, etc. But I'm guessing what major retailers, Amazon, etc.
1: Amazon, yeah, target.com, uh, all, all major bookstores. Thank you. Thank
0: you so much, Andrew. Enjoy the rest of your morning, the rest of your day. And yeah, I look forward to speaking to you again some other time. Thank you, Rachel. And thanks, everybody. See you later. Bye. So there you go, gorgeous. Another episode brought to you by The Hungry Soul. Now, if that conversation has got you a little bit curious about your own journey right now and how perhaps you can start helping yourself to become more self-fed, but maybe you've got no idea where to start or what that might even mean for you. Don't panic. We've got some fabulous gifts for you that are all completely free. All you need to do is head over to soulfedwoman.com forward slash free dash resources. And over there, there's workshops, handouts, meditations, and loads of other goodies. So go and grab as many of them as you want to. I've got wait to speak to you soon. Bye.